Merry Christmas, everybody, from The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, and this year it's going to be a Merry Christmas again. Remember last year we put out our episode with Chris Dunn of City Boy. This year it's another Chris. It's Chris Stamey. Now, this episode, by the way, is going to be different than anything else we've ever put out. I'll explain why in a minute. Regarding Chris, now he's never really been a household name, but he's sort of a legend in his own way, okay? The guy's been around for like 40 years. Back in the day, he, he and Peter Holsapp will form the DBs, who were one of the sort of like forefathers of power pop, especially American independent rock and power pop. This is one of Chris's songs right here. It's called I'm In Love. He didn't last very long. He decided he wanted to go solo, and he's carved a very unique and diverse path for himself ever since. Speaking of diversity, a few months ago, we put out a brand new album. It's a two-disc set called New Songs for the 20th Century. And it's it's different because it's very heavily influenced by like music of the 20s and 30s. Cole Porter, Henry Mancini, the Gershwins, what have you. I want to know why. I want to know like why one of the forefathers of power pop would go that direction. So I asked him about it, but I, I wonder if maybe I bothered him. So as some of you know, I've been wrestling whether to put this episode out for a while because it's a little rough. I'm afraid that it may, I don't know if, if I asked all the wrong questions or maybe I'm way overthinking this. You guys know what a critic I can be of myself. Maybe I'm way overthinking this and it was a beautiful conversation and I'm being too sensitive or maybe he's really annoyed with me or maybe I go down the wrong paths. I'm not exactly sure, but we're going to play it for you warts and all. And uh, let you decide for yourself. And I'm doing that because I'm a big admirer of Chris's work. And I hope that if you're less familiar with Chris, you get um, turned on to it here. One other quick thing about Chris. He wrote a book about him, his career a couple of months ago, a couple of years ago. And as you guys know, I always try to read the guest book before we talk. And I wasn't able to do that this time. And so um, maybe that factored in, you know. Maybe I blew it because I hadn't read his book. Well, anyway, I have mentioned, and I mentioned in this conversation, um, that we sort of famously had an awkward, I had an f- awkward conversation with Richard Lloyd a couple of months ago as well. He, Chris and I talk about that, and at the end of this episode, we're tacking on that conversation as well, for better or worse. So anyway, you guys listen, you guys tell me what you think. Maybe I'm way off, maybe it didn't work, I don't know, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions, but whatever it is, I wanted to showcase some Chris Stamey. I'll tell you about Richard Lloyd at the end, okay? So stay tuned to the very end. Uh, he called me from his home in Chapel Hill. Okay, well, so for starters, Chris, I, um, for somebody whose career is kind of as eclectic as yours is, and I want to ask you a little bit more about this because um, you're somebody that's always done things your own way. Speaking of somebody who's always done their thing, their own thing all this time, the new albums, new songs for the 20th century is like nothing else in your or most other rock stars catalog. It's very jazzy. It goes back to like the music of the 20s and 30s. I mean, you've always been single-minded and done whatever you wanted, but why this album right now? What what was the spark of inspiration that you made you think, that's what I want to do. I want to devote two years of my life to making that album. Why? Uh, well, I mean, I've written in this style before. Um, uh, I mean, there was a song called Occasional Shivers that came out in hmm. 1987 that's on this collection. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've been trying to become a... Uh, I think of Jack Nicholson saying in, in the movie, you know, <laughs> you make me want to be a better man. But I've been trying to become a better musician, hmm. um, just trying to learn more. I've 
going back to school at the university here, um, studying orchestration and uh, jazz a little bit, and um, trying to increase my musical vocabulary. So that mm. that plays into it, but it isn't a particular. You know, there are some things that stylistically are related to Cole Porter or Thelonious Monk or uh, Henry Mancini, but these are maybe more in um, the fact that, you know, when you're writing for a rock band on guitar, you can't have the chords be very dense because the tones are already distorted and they're very harmonically rich. Um, And when I started writing on piano again, um, it became more interesting to have richer chords, you know, mm-hmm. chords with a mm-hmm. seventh or ninth or a thirteenth or, uh, you know, a sharp nine um, in them. On guitar, when you play those with a little bit of distortion, it just sounds like everything's gone wrong. Mm. Um, so that, I guess I've been trying to continually learn more about music and one thing I've liked about producing people is that I always learn from them. Um, but for this record, it's been more me sitting by myself at the piano trying really? to unravel things. Is it, did you approach songwriting maybe because of these classes you're taking or whatever? I mean, is it not normal for Chris Stamey to sit at the piano and write songs? Or is, it, or is this a new approach and this album is the result of this new new approach? Well, he hadn't had a had a piano in a long time. Oh, you know? okay. Um, I got a piano again uh, a few years back, maybe four years back. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a piano I'd grown up with. Uh, it was a, my family piano from um, that I'd had, you know, until I left for college. Interesting, huh? So your old family piano is now in your possession in your home, and that's yeah. what sparked the wanting to go this direction on this album. Huh. I mean, I, I actually think if you look at it from a, a harmonic and melodic point of view, um, my writing is not all that different on this record. No, uh, yeah. What the biggest change, I think, is that um, <clears throat> in, instead of like conceiving a song as something to be recorded, so it's more like a script for a movie and you know that you're going to get um, a certain kind of drum fill or a certain category of drum fill here and you're going to do certain things with echo here. It was none of that. These songs were all written on paper. Hmm. Um, so basically if a couple of sheets of notation um, and then I just put the notation in front of the players and talked to them about what I wanted a little bit. But basically they're reading chord charts and uh, melody charts and realizing the, mu- the music from the paper okay. and that, that's probably the most old-fashioned thing about it but um you know it uh, sadly music notation has um it seems to be in decline you know along with just the cuts and arts programs yeah, yeah. i mean i say that you know i can't really find that to be true here in chapel hill we have incredible middle school and high school music teachers i, I just can't believe it i guess you know a lot of musicians can't find work anywhere else. Yeah. It's like a really high standard. Good. You know, I, I Ben Foles, who uh, was also from Winston-Salem and mm-hmm. lived in Chapel Hill uh, for a while, put out an album of all the acapella bands, mm. all acapella groups doing his music. And um, 
you know, I'm, it's intimidating. <laughs> I've been yeah. doing this a long time, and yeah. there, are, there are kids around who are just blowing my mind all the time. Great, great. Um, so do you, I mean, it sounds to me like you're, you didn't feel like, a, you know, this new album was that far off. I mean, you kind of applied the same sort of musicality, I guess, or the approach maybe to songwriting that you would have approached to something more guitar driven or whatever. And you just did it this way instead. Do you foresee, are your next series of albums going to be along the same, you know, Cole Porter, George Gershwin sort of um, line? Or is this a one-off or what do you think? Is this what gets you excited today? Occasional glances across a room as if there were no one else there. Occasionally, casually, peck a cheek as if. Well, I guess the answer would be yes. Okay. <laughs> Although okay. that's not really going to fill up much of your uh, one-hour broadcast. No, um, that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have a record I did last year I haven't put out that, um, and, and I'm just trying to finish it up now. Um, it's either going to be called The One and Only or uh, Sweetheart of the Video, but it's <laughs> more of a Flying Burrito Brothers record, uh-huh. um, and and I really like it too, but... It's kind of been on the back burner while I was working on this. Um, but as far as that's all stuff that's already been written, as far as uh, mm. the composing I work on every day, it's I'm um, writing a uh, volume. This is called Volume 1 and 2, and I'm writing Volume 3. Mm. Um, uh, the CF, uh, there's a song called In a Minor Key, Je ne sais quoi, um, I Don't Think of You, Persnickety. Um, I guess I've got about seven or eight songs in the works for the mm. new collection. Okay. It's, it's hard. It takes time to write them because you can't kind of. It's got to be done right there. You can't think, okay, this is really working. I'll finish that verse later when huh. we record it because there is no record. The, f- I mean, eventually, I'm, I will hope to record them, but the what I'm making is ink on paper yeah okay that's your process is to write it down on on paper yeah in notation yeah okay um or you know chord chord symbols i mean for the jazz stuff there there's a i grew up on knowing the classical nomenclature of um uh, uh, harmonic analysis but um the the jazz language is a little more shorthand yeah 
Okay. One thing I want to, another thing I want, I should say, I want to ask you about this album in particular. There's so many guests on it and you wouldn't think, or maybe I wouldn't, and maybe I'm ignorant. I wouldn't think necessarily that a Brantford, the Brantford Marsolids would make a, an appearance on a Chris Damey record prior to now. I love the sound of the traffic, the rat-tat-tat of the train, a rhapsody that's pneumatic, so new and strange. I love the cobblestone clatter, the horse-drawn carriages sway, the way the pigeons all scatter. When you make that call, does Branford know? Are you guys buddies? Does he say, oh, we've Chris, done a, we've old done a, I did a record with him uh, and a guy named uh, Chad Ebby uh, a few years ago. I hope I'm producing Chad's name, last name right. That might be wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and then he, uh, Branford played on um, a record I did with Peter Hall's Apple. So he's done a number of things. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. He, you know, he lives next door in Durham. Yeah, okay. Okay. And uh, and Peter knew him through uh, golf, I think. Really, uh, those two play golf. Well, I, or, or <laughs> P, I, anyway, uh, Peter knew him from being in New Orleans. You know, of course, yeah. the Marsalises are from New Orleans. Of course. Um, but my original connection with him was actually from recording him as a guest on an uh, another record. Oh, okay. I have mostly digital copies of so many, so much of your stuff, and that's this comes up, <laughs> this comes up sometimes on this podcast where I'm unaware of something, and it's because I bought it off iTunes, you know. So right. I don't, I haven't read the liner notes to know that Br- that was Bradford in there or whatever. So, yeah, we're trying anyway. to get the, uh, I mean, we, um, the, that wasn't the royal we. It, musicians at large are trying yeah. to get metadata, yeah. um, be more a part of all that uh it, you know it's hard for me as a record producer to lose the credits too and of course as songwriters i mean they're i guess the songwriting credit sometimes does persist but mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you're a great drummer on a bunch of hits your name yeah. is no longer a part of the discussion it's so sad it's so sad uh one of the things and, and it's a pressure it's an impression that i have of you based on what i know and having followed your career for about the last 15 years or so is that i I respect that you seem also like a big music fan, you know, and you mentioning and maybe this line of questioning will go nowhere. But you mentioning the Sweetheart of the Video uh, might be the name of your new album. Obviously, that's a play on Sweetheart of the Rodeo from the Birds. Are you, a, you know, are you a, a big Sweetheart of the Radio fan or, or I'm sorry, Sweetheart of the Rodeo fan? Is that one of your favorite albums? Is that an inspiration to you? I like it. I mean, I like all those birds records. I like mm-hmm. I like kind of the, the general sound. Yeah. It. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, I have a song called Sweetheart of the Video that kind of fits into. Oh, I see. Um, okay. But, um, uh, you know, what have I done? I mean, I've done a lot of records uh, with Al, Al Perkins, uh, 
um, Eric Hay- Haywood. There are a lot of great steel players out there. So I, I wanted to do a record with steel. Mm. Um, I don't know if... Uh, was it Pete Drake on... No, who was it on Sweetheart of the Rodeo? I'm not remembering now. But they played um, steel? Um, was, was it, it Al? No, I think it was, it was Lloyd Green or... Because I just saw the, I just finished watching the the Ken Burns country music documentary, uh, and I just finished it the other night, and that episode came up, and I think was the guy's name Lloyd Green. I remember making a note of it and thinking, I'm going to see if I can get Lloyd Green on this podcast because I'd love to talk to him. Maybe yeah. I'm getting the name wrong, but that's who I think it was. Okay. In any case, um, yeah, I like that record, but I mean, I I like a a lot of records. I, yeah. I, it's not that's not it. I mean, I, I like the birds who did the lineup that did like artificial energy and five D is a song I've recorded. Um, you know, eight miles high that, that, that was probably more my go-to birds. Okay. Okay. But you know, it's, it's great stuff. I, I like how those records seem, uh, a little bit casual and not mm. labored over. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably were labored over, but they, they often don't have extraneous parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, the reason I ask is because I you being such a music fan and I want to ask you more about that, especially as it relates to Big Star. But I wondered if when you go into these excursions, you're kind of like, you know what, I've been I've been listening to a lot of birds lately. And so I feel like I'm going to make that's what's influencing my next album or I'm listening to a lot of Cole Porter lately. And that's what I want to make something that he would have done. I don't know if you approach you know, each album is kind of its own thing, and it's based on what your influences are at that no, time. No, 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 it doesn't really have anything like to do okay. with that. I mean, actually, I um, have made a point for decades now of listening to very little music, because uh, mm. I, I, I mm-hmm. mix, and, and in this, I have a, a studio, and I'm just in front of the speakers so much, uh, yeah. so that, you know, I'm, I try to make sure my ears are hanging in there. I bet. Um, okay. I mean, I've I've been lucky. To, like when I was in the DBs, you know, Peter Volzapel and Will Rigby, had uh, two of the members of the band had uh, really Catholic knowledge of every record that had ever come out. Right. Um, and I would kind of lean on them. Um, and you wouldn't say you are that kind of guy. I've always sort of assumed you were that kind of guy, a big music head. You know. You know, Peter has a song called "That Kind of Guy." That's not what you're referring to, is it? No, no. <laughs> oh, it's it, that kind of guy. It's it's catchy. I don't think he's recorded it yet, but it's about the obsessed record collector. Um, oh, really? I didn't know that. Line in it, like, uh, uh, you know, he the guy loves the Rolling Stones, but uh, when, oh, oh, but after Taylor left, they were no good, and by that he mm. means not Mick Taylor, but dick taylor oh gosh that's deep. So it's, yeah it's, it's okay. a total uh and it's called that kind of guy uh, okay. it's a really cool song okay i'm le- i'll look it up i'm less familiar with peter's well, it's not, it's not out actually. okay, okay. Peter, peter's been playing a lot i don't know okay i'll look no 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 i just um based on who you've worked with and a little bit of your story i mean i know you know the db's all even though they were all from the South, they moved to New York and want to be a part of that scene. And that's sort of where everyone comes together. And um, early on working with guys like Richard Lloyd and Alex Chilton, I'm just imagining you're a music lover like the rest of us. And you're getting to collaborate with some of your heroes and like, no way, Richard Lloyd, that's the guy who played guitar for television. You know, I'm wondering, I'm trying to, I'm curious if you're that sort of a excitable boy, you know, you're having these moments that are just like, I can't believe I get to do this. Or if it's, 
you're not really built that way. That's a lot to unpack. Oh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I like I like musicians a lot. I'm not, you know, uh, rock stars is not. I'm not really mm. that. Um, I mean, that good mean musicians. That it's just yeah. it's it's like uh, being a. It's not like being a monk, but it's it's mm. definitely an avocation. I mean, it's a. Um, it's impressive when people devote their life to mastering a craft and. I mean, all of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, R Richard Lloyd was really, is really good at doing what he does on guitar, but mm -hmm. it, it partially is the result from sitting by himself for hour after hour after mm -hmm. hour and getting the chops, you know. Mm -hmm. um, playing with Alex Chilton, I mean, he loved all kinds of music. I mean, we would go see Charles Mingus together or, I mean, whoever, you know, uh, Brian Wilson would be calling him up. I mean, it wasn't this power pop thing. Um, no. It was, uh, you know, Alex was wide open and, and a really good musician, you know. I mean, no. you talk about the Cole Porter stuff, but his record, Cliché, is pretty much forgotten, but it's all Great American Songbook. Okay, yeah. Do you know uh, that record? No, I don't know that one as well. Yeah, it's, it, he's just playing acoustic guitar and doing real book changes and singing standards. Okay. Huh. I'll give it a listen. I, you know, I, so my history with you is that in the early 2000s, I was working in Tower Records corporate offices. And um, at the time I was working with someone who, you know, the best, one of the best parts about that job is everyone that works there loves music so much. And we all bring with us our likes and our favorites from our upbringing or whatever. And um, one of my colleagues was from Chapel Hill. And uh, so she brought with her, I was from, I'm from Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, I didn't grow up ah. listening to the DBs. You know, you, you didn't get played enough on those. I've only been played there once. I've only played in Salt Lake City once. Uh, really? And and it was an odd night, but I couldn't really judge the city from that. When well, Tell me about it. What was it? I was on tour with Let's Active, but we were, mm. somehow, I think we were booked in a Holiday Inn lounge. Um, <laughs> and, you know, truthfully, it was not, I. it was just me and a woman who played uh, electronic keyboard and it was not what people wanted to hear. Well, yeah. I, I'm not, I never really figured out what they wanted to hear that night. But, you know, you can't go <laughs> yeah. by yeah. one night. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. As uh, Salt Lake City fully embraces alternative rock, especially of the 80s. Those, a lot of those artists are still huge over there. But, and it's better now, but yeah, I, you know, being one of those alternative rock kids, I can't say that I heard a lot of classic Chris Damey albums or, or DB's music or anything like that on the radio. And so um, when I was working for Tower at the beginning of the, uh, near the beginning of the 2000s, I was learning so much. She was bringing with her Less Active and DB's and Guadalcanal Diary and so many of these like Southern Rock, Don Dixon type stuff.
at that same time, Your Travels in the South album came out. And uh, I love that record. That's my favorite Chris Damey record, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get a lot of music for free. And this one has a really striking cover of the plane. And it's on Yep Rock. And the spine is that beautiful shade of blue. And it looks great in my on the shelf in my collection. And so <laughs> that's when I started getting, you know, we look for stuff like that sometimes. And that's, uh, that's when I was like, ooh, I really like this Chris Damey guy. One thing I've that's sort of I think maybe maybe you'll disagree but there's I was reading a review of one of your albums and it was talking about the how sometimes your sound can be weird and uncommercial and I thought yeah there's always this sort of it's a little different it's not always just this straightforward pop music there's something different there and I wondered is that are you do you agree do you or are you making pop as pure as you think it can possibly be or do you knowingly go into stuff and say you know what i've got a different perspective and i'm going to tweak this just a little bit make it just a little weird you know in all fairness i don't, I don't think we're really speaking the same language i don't i don't know I, I mean i write music i don't really think about it in terms of society of 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 whether or not it's got 10% weirdness or anything like that. Mm. I, I don't... I mean, usually the songs are about something. I mean, I'm trying to express something that may be very sp specific to me, and I just try to do it the best I can. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I do have a theory of, hin I guess, what I call hinge m moments in record-making or, or in movies or, or anything where... The, Generally, it, 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 you can look at it in one way. It's kind of like choreographed attention, um, or it, it happens over time. And there are expectations that are set up. Nowadays, often it's just a one, the same four chords as every other song, and you set up an expectation that these are going to continue. And then maybe there's a lyrical variation as it goes along. But I've always thought it's important to uh, uh, confound expectation at certain points um, it's like Roadrunner running over the cliff, or mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you like you look at a piano keyboard, and uh, or you look at a major scale, and it's going uh, C uh, C D E F, right? So mm -hmm. it's going major uh, um, major seconds, you know, mm -hmm. and then it goes from E to F, and it's just like a little, it's a half step all of a sudden, and that's a scale we know. But if you're going C, D, E, F sharp all of a sudden, you're at a hinge point and it's going to um, do that Roadrunner thing when all of a sudden it's not quite what you expected and you wake up a little bit. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to respond to what you're asking me, but I, I never would think about um, contorting or thwarting the impulse of a composition in order to tweak the nose of the mm. listener. It would always be to make you wake up out of your expectations okay okay um i'm gonna tell I mean, you on this new record that the, what i'm most proud of is harmonic um slight innovations where uh and and i could even give you the bar numbers of i mean but <laughs> they're, they're just places where all of a sudden there's a modulation you don't expect mm. um or, or something that's really out of the key but it's pivoting off of a melodic note. And hmm. um, so I think my my listening to my own music is, you know, I hit these moments. I mean, okay, there's a song called On an Evening Such As This, 
which is kind of a Mancini song, a little bit like Moon River. Until the moon creeps across the mountain tops, and I hear the owls croon, and the world is just a paint child's balloon. On an evening such as this. I'm waiting here for you. I spend the hours of the day dreaming of the night. When the mystery of the dark replaces the dull light, I know I'll find. It's just doing the simplest chord progression, walking up. Uh, musicians would call it a two, three, four progression, and then, but all of a sudden it goes to a, a minor chord on the flat three, which is way unexpected. Mm-hmm. So. If I don't know. This is really not podcast material, maybe, but <laughs> spots like this where um, you think you know what's happening, and then all of a sudden, mm. there's a maybe you, call, you should call him a Hitchcock moment. Oh yeah. Um, I like that. Okay. Okay. Enough. <laughs> no. Let okay. Let me take a step back for a minute. Um, I have a feeling I'm annoying you, and um, oh, no, 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 and, uh, not not at all. I just am trying to give you a. a a real no, answer. I know. I know. I, I, um, no, uh, relax. You're not annoying me at all. It's okay. just what I'm like. I mean, I, no, I, I, uh, I get the feeling like I'm annoying you or that you don't like my line of no. questioning. And I, no, no, and no, I no, tend no. to approach these things. You don't have to apologize. I, um, I, I, I approach these things often just as a fan, like a goofy fan who's like, you know, I, I love that song. Tell me about that song, you know, I, and, I um I get the feeling I'm rubbing you the wrong way. And so I wanted to give you an exit. I wanted to give you a, you know, get out of jail free card if you wanted. If you'd rather not do this or or if I'm bothering you, uh please just tell me. It's okay. We'll stop and you can have your Sunday back or whatever. I I don't want to annoy it pains me to annoy the people I respect, you know? No, I, I don't so, know what you're talking about. Okay, okay. And you should, you should probably leave this in the edit, too. I mean, um, <laughs> it, no, I, I okay, am, all okay. I'm saying is um, I am trying to actually explain yeah. um, what I would be thinking about. Um, okay, okay. It's, you know, I just, I just I'm, I'm not... Um, well, here's a be- maybe a better description of it, of what I'm talking about. I, I think that um, the bicameral brain uh, theory of creative work is very accurate, where you talk about left brain, right brain. And I think that a lot of creati- creative activity is right brain activity, and you're kind of in the zone, and you're just, everything seems easy, and you're able, you know, it like, Sports guys talk about being in the zone. You, you're, mm-hmm. There's a flow, and you're able to write. Mm. Now, before that, and then after that, you might have thoughts about, oh, well, it would be really cool to do a song like, 
write a spring or strawberry fields forever or whatever mm-hmm. like that. But when you're actually doing it, when you're actually in this kind of right brain mm-hmm. mode, you're just not thinking in that way. Mm. And so it, it's disingenuous for me to say that I would be really trying to do something like, uh, let's say, Sweetheart of the Radio, because I'm, I'm just kind of in this creative space where it seems like, oh, this is, there's nothing to this, you know. Mm-hmm. I can just write and it just flows out. I've done it a lot and mm-hmm. I like doing it and, and it's just such a privilege and a joy to write music and mm-hmm. to write songs is really cool, you know. I can usually get words and music at the same time, but for me it's always based on rhythms of words. Yeah. Um, it just isn't um, really referential to other Mm. things in, okay. being in that zone. Okay. Does that make sense? Um, I mean, I have no animosity toward you at all. I mean, <laughs> this, is, I, this is an honor to well, anybody thank, be interested in talking to me. Thank you. I, I worry that I'm asking the wrong questions or something, and I... I um, <laughs> so I'll, Well, I'll you might it. be, but I'm trying to give the right answers. You I know? know. I mean, how well, would you know the right questions? Because we've yeah. never talked before. Right. I, um, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. So about a month ago, I started interviewing Richard Lloyd, and um, I'm a huge television. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge television fan, and and um, I read his book twice to get ready for our interview. And um, about 20 minutes in, he stopped me and he said, "You know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like your oh. questioning. You're making me uncomfortable." He and he said, "What I'll never forget." He said, "It's not your fault. You are who you are," and uh, he said, "But I just don't want to do this," and. Um, you know, on phone interviews sometimes, and you, you've probably done a million of these, it's difficult for two people who aren't in the same room to kind of find a rhythm, find, you know, to sort of find the chemistry and mesh. And yes, it was harder for he and I to find that chemistry, but I just hope that eventually it'll work itself out. And I love him so much that I want, in television and everything, that I thought my my love will see us through, you know, but it wasn't working. And uh, he... Uh, so I we stopped and I I said I gave him like a month off and then I went back later and was like, Richard, it's been a month. If you know if you'd please allow me to do this again, I'll change whatever you want me to change. And he just wrote back and said, No go. And so, oh, funny. Thought, oh no, I, yeah. And so I'm thinking I'm like you two are friends and I'm like oh man I'm having another Richard Lloyd experience with Chris Stamey. I don't want to keep having these experiences where I'm asking the wrong questions and they're getting annoyed with me. So anyway, I wanted to give you an out. Well, you know, Chris, Richard Lloyd wanted an out. I wanted to give you an out. One thing I did want to ask about is that, so it's not your first solo album, but that first, um, uh, It's All Right. You know, that that album, I think it's probably the only one you did on a, on a major label. And it sounds very just straightforward, beautiful, poppy. One thing I've always been curious about is, was there really a Kara Lee? Is she a real person?
Um, <laughs> uh, I told her I would always say that there wasn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that answer. Okay. Okay, good. At a time like that, now you, you felt... Um, my understanding is that when you left the DBs, I don't think there was any bad blood. I don't know that everyone was like fighting it with each other. It was more that you just felt like you wanted to go solo. I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. But is it, did you go solo because you wanted to make an album like It's All Right and didn't feel like you could? Or, you know, what was the motivation for that? Um, well, I, 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 uh, this is something that is in that book of mine, but um, okay. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I felt like it was a... Um, a crowded playing field, mainly because of the length of vinyl records. Uh, mm. Peter and I were writing a lot of songs, and uh, you know, because of uh, vinyl, it was the medium at that time, and it was kind of like papyrus. There, mm. it was very rigid. Um, you could only have so much time. You know, once you got over eighteen or twenty minutes on the side, um, that was all she wrote. If you wanted to, to sound good, and yeah. so as we kept making records or more and more songs that weren't able to we just both peter and i had a big backlog of songs and um i could see that that wasn't a good idea um mm. also the group uh you know had a lot you know the uh, the everybody had a lot to give and it just seemed crowded maybe sonically at times too mm. you know mm-hmm. i mean gene was a great guitar player uh peter and i played bass well um and you know every there were a lot of cooks in that band yeah yeah so i I think it got more streamlined once i was gone and and maybe that was also true of what i was doing okay okay um you know you were you sort of after it's all right minors and fireworks is also a great album but you kind of focused mostly in the 90s if i remember correctly on producing other acts not so much on your own solo material where you sort of was producing getting you more excited at the time? Were you just not as into writing your own stuff? What was the thinking? Well, see, I mean, I, I was producing a lot, but I was producing a lot even um, while making those other records. Really? You know, I, I, uh, Peter Holzapple and I made a couple of records together um, that's true. during that time. Yeah, that, that's true. That was a good creative project. Um, and um, again, it might have been, you know, it. Even just the two of us, the the records had a lot going on. You could, mm-hmm. you could see how the DBs were um, was a lot of hands on deck for the DBs mm-hmm. records. You know? mm-hmm. I, I, I was doing both. I mean, I, okay. I, um, Is there one that gets you more excited or feels more artistically satisfying than the other? Um, yeah, no, I like writing music. Do you? That's your thing. Okay. Um, one thing I remember, too, is after Travels in the South came out, it was followed quickly by Vote and um, that you had done with Yola Tango. And I want to ask you more about Yola Tango in a minute. In fact, I want to know so much about some of the people you've collaborated with. You've worked with so many of my favorite people. But I, um, it, <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you don't feel this way, but it feels almost like we're, in, we're ready for another album like Vote to come out at a time like now. You know what I mean? Oh, well, pol- uh, politically, uh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, you know, uh, it, it, it's hard to preach to the converted, you know, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't, it's maybe not the most efficient, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, I don't know what to tell you about that. I mean, I, I, I've been working with Ira a lot over, over the years to doing these, uh, 
orchestrated concerts of, of the Big Star's third record, and mm-hmm. I, I still see them a lot. Um, and I've played with them over the years, too. I mean, I was in Yola Tango originally. I, I don't know if I knew one that. Lineup really? that was uh, our, me and I are on guitar and, okay. um, a, you know, a different bassist in, in Georgia. I mean, we were neighbors in Hoboken. Ah. So it's pretty. It was pretty organic to huh. do things off and on with them. I mean that boat uh, thing, which also was uh, released as a question of temperature. Mm-hmm. Later, we think of it as an EP. I think Ira called it the world's longest EP, <laughs> right. since it's about an hour long. Yeah, we we only went in the studio to do a few songs, but they were very efficient um, record making aggregation and I had my friend Tyson Rogers on keyboard and we just kept cutting and cutting. I would mm-hmm. write songs in the morning and uh, would record them in the afternoon just like the, uh, you know, those Bob Dylan sessions, except mm-hmm. I didn't keep them waiting as long as apparently he kept his. <laughs> but I, I'm guessing at the time and I, a lot of the things I've been guessing about, I've been proven wrong, but I'm guessing at the time you, you felt so, uh, I don't know, uh, exasperated enough with the present culture that it, demanded a uh, sort of a protest song or album, you know, of your own making at the time and get out and vote and let's fix things. And um, I wonder. No, if, not really. You oh, know, no. that was. Uh, yeah, I guess you're I mean, sure. I had recorded a, uh, uh, a band name uh, called Roman Candle, a great band. Mm. Uh, doing um, their version of an Otis Redding PSA. Um, uh, if you don't go back to school this year, you're really not grooving. Um, it was all about, you know, literacy at the school level in the mm. 60s. And um, I just adapted it as this PSA for voting. Mm. It's pretty much a lift from the Otis Redding PSA oh, okay. for okay. Uh, literacy. But okay. I mean, yeah, we meant it because it seemed really important to get out and vote yeah. in that month. Yeah. Okay. I wondered if you felt. But the whole record is not really based around that. No, that's true. It was true. not. It was. There was. It wasn't. Let's go try to change the political situation. It was. Let's go make a record together and see what happens. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you seem to like collaborating. Um, working with your friends, working with fellow musicians, whether they be Yola Tango or Richard or Matthew Sweet or Don Dixon. I've had Don Dixon on here. He was great. What what gets you excited about collaboration? You know, I, I, I did a concert um, in September um, in Nashville. with It was a, a band with Don Dixon and Mitch Easter and mm-hmm. our old friend Robin Borthwick on drums. And uh, we really had a great time. And we are going to try to do that again. I mean, it seemed like a great. pretty good band. Don played bass, and Mitch and I played guitar, and Robin is a great drummer. Um, Robin had been playing drums in um, a band with Mitch Easter in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade <laughs> in Winston-Salem, and she mm-hmm. came back to North Carolina. So uh, those guys I've, I've just known forever. And, yeah. um, I, I, you know, my, my general rule of thumb is, am I going to learn something? And every, every mm-hmm. time I do anything with them, I learn something. Okay. Yeah, I would imagine. And they, you guys all seem to share a, uh, I don't know, like a, 
an artistic sensibility or something. It, it, as an outsider, I think it makes sense that the, all those people know each other and are friends. You know, it makes sense based on what you your your output creatively in this world. Um, I, you know, I, th I think that they're often little clusters of uh, support groups like that. I mean, uh, you know, Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, um, you know, were a famous example. And in that model, maybe Don Dixon would be our Schoenberg and mm -hmm. that he had been making records uh, really early on, making mm -hmm. beach records and doing studio work. And he came to town and showed me and Mitch kind of how it was done at the pro level because we were just messing around with our tape recorders and imagining what it might be like. Um, and, you know, just like the Viennese serialists, uh, we're all very different. Mm -hmm. but. Um, there, there is sort of a shared aesthetic. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've never met anybody like either of those guys. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. But I I'm pretty imagine. different. I'm pretty different. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Um, but it does make sense that you guys all like and work to and respect each other and work together. As to me, oh, I had a question. Oh, I wanted to add, let's go. Let's start. Let's talk about Big Star. I mean, it seems like it, these days you're one of like the, I don't know, like you continue to carry the torch for this band. My, I read, I heard, or I read. No, some... no, I actually don't. I don't though. I, I've, I'm, I've resigned as musical director of the Big Star things. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, there is going to be one more coming up that isn't announced, but I'm going along just to play guitar on a few things. I, I'm not doing that. Um, and that, 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 you know, playing with Alex Children was great, but, yeah. you know, the context, uh, Big Star was actually a hit band in Winston-Salem. Um, I mean, they were on the radio, in Top 40 radio, oh. and, you know, I, I had a different, uh, I mean, I would have loved them <laughs> any way you look at it, but I didn't yeah. realize they were this cult band, you know. Huh. Um, they weren't a cult band to you? No. I mean, okay. they were on the radio. They were on top forty radio in Winston. Oh, I had no idea. Huh. Okay. So the, um, it, and then playing with Alex was great in a totally different way. Um, he, he was he was just really really good and a great uh, singer and and uh, really deep thinker and uh, um, and very kind and sharing to help yeah. me learn stuff and yeah. Um, but the other, you know, we just, what actually happened about the Big Star's third concerts is that um, there's a club here called Cat's Cradle. It's been here mm -hmm. a long time. And mm -hmm. um, the owner, and a lot of us really loved Elliot Smith. And we, uh, after Elliot died, uh, we did a concert of his music with a lot of different people. And we were really proud of it. Um, it, it was uh, really musically accurate and representative we thought and we thought well where do we go from here and what could be even harder and unlike more unlikely and hmm. we thought it'd be the big star third record so yeah like late one night we said let's do the orchestrated version of the big star record and then we forgot about it for like two years and the club owner called me up frank heath and said remember when we were talking about that let's do it and uh it was a lot harder than I thought it would be because we had to rewrite the orchestrations um, and write new ones and really make it work. But it, there were a lot of 
there's a lot of great music out there. This one seemed like it was really a difficult one, mm. and that was the appeal. Mm. Um, and we're we're all really proud of it. Oh, I, you know, I don't know, 30 people have been involved in it, and there's a DVD that Concord Music put out um, called, I believe, Thank You, Friends, that mm. is great. I highly recommend it. I think you can get it on uh, as a rental on Netflix or if oh, great. Okay. Uh, Amazon Prime. It's really, it's it's fantastic. Um, all these people, you know, like Jeff Tweedy would just kind of showed up and hmm. ambled up to the stage and completely blew our minds at how great he was. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, the Cronus Quartet, um, mm. it, it, millions of people. It's really a good thing. But okay. it wasn't really out of a fandom thing. It was more like, North Carolina pride, like we have uh, a good scene here, and let's do something hard. Good. Would you say that? Um, and maybe I'm over romanticizing this. Would you say that discover? I mean, are the is Big Star your biggest influence, or the thing that got you excited about wanting to get into music? Is it based on your love of Big Star, or was it something different? I mean, Big Star was like. What was it 72 73 i don't uh -huh. remember exactly the year i mean i i was playing music years before that oh were you uh, okay but, i mean um trying to think what i mean at that time we kind of liked everything but you know Jimi hendrix um um you know cream i mean it was you know you, it was gr great to play with alex chilton and i'm grateful for that and i always mm -hmm. will be but you know, I, I toured with Jack Bruce, <laughs> and that was really, really? Like, like, I mean, I was a little kid and fanatic about Israeli Gears and all this yeah. dream records, you know, and and weirdly enough, I played bass with Jack, you know, he would play guitar. How? Why? What, what band, was the situation? Uh, oh, sure, sure, of course, I forgot about that, yes. Yeah, okay. um, and so, I mean, yeah, some of those cream records, but... You know, and I mean, I, I you'd have to go month by month for me to list the things that in, inspired me. A lot of it was British psychedelia. Uh, you know, yeah. the King Crimson record came out, you know, mm. and that was a, a big deal. Uh, that band, The Move, yeah. um, big deal. Yeah, I um, I was watching a uh, panel you were on discussing CBGBs. And Richard oh, with Richard, yeah, 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 and, and, the, and Tina, yeah, I put yeah. the panel together, actually. Oh, you did? So yeah. I guess I hadn't, I mean, it makes sense, but I guess I hadn't considered factoring CBGBs into the Chris Stamey or even the, D, the DB's history. I mean, you talked about it on there, but tell us, do you have any stories that you can share? I mean, that's just such a romanticized time of rock and well, roll. Well, you, you, know? you should get the book, um, okay. because it's really centered, it's all a lot about that. Okay. Um, uh, but but stories to share, you know. Um, I mean, the, the there are a couple of things that are really warped by, for example, the Ellen Rickman movie about it. Um, mm -hmm. One was that um, the the symbolist poets was a big part of that, and the idea of looking for something new. Um, it wasn't, uh, um, you know spittle and safety pins it was mm -hmm. kind of where could the music go uh, a lot and and also it was a very small scene i mean the club would be packed but it would be um the same 200 people <laughs> you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. and and greenwich village at the time or downtown new york was 
um, everybody walked, nobody had any mm. money, and mm-hmm. everybody would run it. You know, everybody in that little scene, you'd see him on the street. It was like being in a little town. Yeah. The difference was the uh, a portion of those people were writing for national magazines, so it really blew up because they were supporting their home team, CBGB, uh, through the pages of these national magazines. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I would. Um, I would imagine the energy there, watching it happen, you know, in real time, must have been amazing. I and and we know of the big bands like the Ramones. I had a guy on here uh, a while back named Arthur Alexander, who was in a band called Sorrows. Yeah, I know of him. I know. Oh, him. you do? Okay. Yeah, um, they were great too, and they're one of the. They were a band that you know you don't even talk about when you talk about the CBGB sound, and. Um, it just seems like every it what a petri dish of creativity for the world, you know, at that time. Well, a, a lot of these things that seem like social movements are actually uh, just a couple of people, um, mm-hmm. and it, it really did have a lot to do with Hilly, but it had a lot to do with uh, uh, Tom and Richard from television, mm-hmm. you know, wanting a regular gig and mm-hmm. being confident about what they were doing um you know they really put their feet in the sand there at cbgb's and um there weren't many things as good as what the television was doing Mm -hmm. i mean talking heads were completely different but i'd say they also really stuck to their guns and had a vision Yeah. yeah yeah it's so true um i wanted to ask you about a couple of the other people you collaborated with and then we can um we'll call it a day uh, specifically, Whiskey Town, um, and I really like the Caitlin Carey album that you produced as well. And staying out, that came out around the same time as Travels in the South. So I was sort of, you know, right. Really... Yeah, I did three records with Caitlin. One mm-hmm. called Waltzy, and then one uh, called While You Weren't Looking, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then I'm staying out. Um, you did the I Trace like all those quite a bit. Um, I do too. You that did was the after Trace... Whiskey Town. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think the Trace Chicas album came out around that time. And I was also working at Tower then, too. And so I got that album as well. Um, What was it like working with Ryan Adams? I mean, he, you know, he's kind of in some trouble these days. Uh, I'm not you don't have to necessarily comment on that. But uh, what are your thoughts and recollections of working with Ryan? Uh, Well, I mean, it was generally fantastic. I mean, um, what. Ryan really had this attitude of we're here in the studio and we're going to do something that's valid and right now. It And it was definitely that, you know, people had been uh, slavering over multi-track recording for a couple of decades at that point, and there was, it was this kind of whole tedious uh, uh, process of recording. You know, you got to get a tight drum track to a click track. You go in and uh, you know, you lay down these parts, punching and rhythm guitar. I mean, that really was not what Ryan was about. It was like, mm-hmm. I've got this new song, um, check it out. Um, let's record it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a question of I'll do a scratch vocal and then think about it. It was I'll sing it great right now. So that whole right now thing, mm-hmm. um, at that point, I really needed that. It was great to have somebody that energized and that immediate who loved what he was doing, but also loved a million 
you know, you talk about your record fans. I mean, mm-hmm. he's definitely one. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it was funny because I was hearing about him a little bit, hearing about Whiskey Town, and I kind of said, you know, yeah, 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 you know, it didn't, country rock, it's all fine. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I had this kind of like terrible attitude because it was, I was so busy. I wasn't going. Yeah. And, and, and then I went to a party in Raleigh and there were these guys playing in the corner and it wasn't Whiskey Town. It was this band that I think only existed that week mm. uh, that Ryan was in. And uh, I thought it, it was really great. And I wrote a letter that night to a record label I was starting to work for in L.A. and I literally said, I have seen the future of rock and roll. Mm. Really? I found that letter the other day. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was imitating the John Landau thing about Chris Springsteen, but um, I said, you know, you guys should sign him right now. He's great. And it was that, that kind of <laughs> effusive mm-hmm. thing from seeing four songs of the party, which mm-hmm. isn't really like me, but I, I really thought he was great. And um, unfortunately, they didn't. Mm. Two years later, they were crazy to sign him, and it got very expensive. Uh. Um, and and other people also had realized that Ryan was really good, but, um, yeah. So those mm-hmm. are some Ryan stories. I mean, huh, interesting. I love a lot of the recordings I did with him. There, there are a couple of full albums I've done with him that have never come out. That really? I think are really super. There's a record called forever Valentine. Huh? Um, uh, there's a track he and I did together here called diploma that I think is, uh, fantastic track but i mean a lot of engineers have the same stories you know mm. he, he recorded a lot particularly at that time mm-hmm. um, but oh. i i think um my experiences with ryan adams were great i have, good. To, have to say good good well look i wanted to close it out with uh, a question that i ask most people and i'm curious if you have just like a tastiest memory a favorite thing i mean you've probably You've been able to work with so many of your musical heroes and and maybe you don't think of it like that like you were saying earlier it's not really about rock stardom or anything but when you look back at your career do you think i can't believe that happened to me do you have a moment like that and if so what is it and i'm sorry if it's in your book oh uh (laughs) i don't know um i obviously the right answer is there there are so many but i i um i mean what i'm thinking of right now is uh Funny memory, I think of. Good. Uh, I don't know if I can say it in the right way. Um, of of uh, the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival with Golden Palominos, where we went there days before, and it was amazing. We were, at, you know, on the lake uh, there, and uh, really excited about our show. And you know, Miles Davis, uh, one of the latter Miles Davis bands, was playing, and. You know, I can't go on. I can't tell any. Actually, <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. tell you any more about this story. Okay. I just realized uh, it won't reflect well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm guessing everybody has a million of those stories, so that's all right. We'll just see. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, uh, it, I'd have to ask Kirby Hancock if it was okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I love Kirby. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for talking with me, Chris. I've, um, like I said, I became a fan on Travels in the South, and uh, there's no one quite like Chris Stamey. And uh, so I thought I was, I was curious to hear the Chris Stamey story. And so thank you for sharing it with me. Well, let me add one thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you led into 
playing um, any particular tracks? Did you want to play music? Well, I, uh, you know, sometimes I just see where the conversation goes. There were, um, you know, one or two albums off or songs off the new album came up. Uh, one or two off It's All Right came up. Um, I am going to. Okay. Yeah. Then if you don't, I didn't know if you needed me to say anything. It's lead ins. No, 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 no. That's okay. They, I, uh, I just, I want the conversation to feel natural. And, um, and I, and I don't, I always worry about talking over anyone's head, you know? And so when I, if a song comes up or an album comes up or whatever, and I say how much I like it, I might insert a little bit. Like for instance, the first three songs on Travels in the South is like, those are one of my favorite, you know, back to back to back one, two, three punches of an album. I like oh, 14 Shades. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what that was. I mean, I remember Kierkegaard and Ride and 14 Shades of Green. Were those the first? It was 14 or? Shades of Green, uh, Kierkegaard, and The Sound You Hear, which is probably oh, my right. favorite Chris Stamey song. And we always kick, we always play one at the intro of the episode and one at the outro. And uh, I was going to save The Sound You Hear for the outro and tell people, well, the song right here that you're listening to is my favorite Chris Stamey song or whatever. Oh, so, well, wow. Yeah, yeah. I... Uh, yeah, Anton Fear like that one. I, I, it's a hard one to play because it's very, you know halftime and huh. hardly ever played it. But um, yeah. cool, great. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And so I, yeah, I'll sprinkle them in wherever it makes sense, you know, or I won't. It's it's okay. This is a conversation that we just I want it to feel natural, and we put little songs in there so people know what we're talking about sometimes. All right. Well, thanks for taking all the time, and sorry about your worry. I. Uh, Okay. Um, I, I'm very pedantic, or I try to say things accurately in a revealing way, and I think I uh, must have come off like a jerk. I'm sorry. I really no, didn't. no, no, it wasn't I would bad. never want to make you feel bad. It's you're, no. you're, it's it's amazing that you would want to take the time to do this, and I, I really appreciate it. No, you weren't a jerk at all. I, it was I. <laughs> I, when you said Richard, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, and it, and I'm so bummed about it because I, I was so ready to talk to Richard. You know, I have just 30 years of questions for Richard, and maybe I blew it because I, we started out talking about television, and maybe we should have started out talking about the book and everything. And and as you can tell, I get kind of excited, and that's t that tends to be what my listeners like is my enthusiasm and. With Richard, it was like I kept, I was coming in at eleven, and he was coming in at two, and we just uh -huh. could not, you know, find the good rhythm. And I think I just put him off, and I, I thought, oh no, uh, if this right. is happening again, I'm going to let Chris know that he can go comfortably, and I'll still love him, and it no harm done, you know. And so, you know, Richard anyway. plays a lot on that. Uh, it's all right, record. That's Does what, he? Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. how he ended up playing with Matthew and Golden Palomino's was through those sessions i think yeah um but yeah um yeah i mean i, I was recording with him before the dbs existed you know you really? yeah that's right i read something about a single you guys did back in 77 or something like that right yeah yeah um so yeah I, that's what i mean that, that i was sort of and, and sometimes my approach to these things is wrong i just i'm thinking chris damey's worked with so many great people he must be in hog heaven when someone like richard lloyd plays on his album or when someone like matthew sweet comes and wants to hang out or don dixon's there to play some show you know and i i'm imagining you getting as excited about some of these people as i am but 
you're uh, as I would be or whatever. Well, no, but I was excited about Richard for sure. Okay, uh, okay. I mean, Matthew was kind of a kid when I started playing with him. He yeah. he um, he uh, he also came in at eleven. You know, he had a lot of questions mm-hmm. about people. So I was probably actually rude to him at the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, but uh, you know, we got on well. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it was it was amazing to play with Richard when I was you know, 20 years old and just off the boat. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's just, these names seem to add up when you've lived forever as I have. There's a lot of timing. There you have it, Chris Stamey. (laughs) You guys tell me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, again, maybe I way overthought this or maybe it just, uh, I wasn't on my best game, or maybe Chris and I just had an awkward dynamic. I don't know. You tell me. But I hope you come away uh, appreciating some of Chris's music. This right here is maybe my favorite Chris Stamey song. It's called The Sound You Hear, and it's off that album I mentioned called Travels in the South. Now, I've been hanging on to this for a couple of months, and a lot of people have requested it. I thought, why not just put these both out at once um, and uh, let you hear my conversation with Richard Lloyd. It goes on about 22 minutes and uh, you tell me once again, Chris, uh, not Chris, Richard obviously at one point sort of decides he's had enough. He doesn't want to keep talking to me and I feel terrible about it because I love Richard and I love television and I was so honored that he would talk to me and I was so eager to tell his story and I read his book a couple of times and I feel especially bad because, and it's probably my own fault. We start off talking about television and Marky Moon specifically, and maybe he's just sick of talking about that. And maybe I should have led with the book, which I really wanted to get to, but we sort of kicked it off that way. It's my fault. And, and we never got past it. So I don't know, gang. Um, we're just leaving this one as is. Not a ton of editing, not a bunch of song insertions or anything like that. If you're familiar with television or Richard, I hope you already know this stuff. Or you can go out and check it out on your own because it's fantastic. Same with Chris Stamey. But I thought, why don't we just uh, put these both out at once and let the listeners decide how they feel. Okay? And hopefully you get turned on to artists you don't know very well in the process. So, here we go. This is my conversation with Richard Lloyd. Well, for starters, um, I uh, so I have to tell you, about six years ago, I was on a business trip in San Francisco, and uh, I looked up while I was there who was in town in concert, and television was there, and I'd never seen television, and like a, yeah. I don't know, I I don't know where what other people's. I'm 46, so you're, I was really young yeah. and not paying attention to music when television was a thing. But it was uh, Rolling Stone magazines uh, in 1987 on their 20th anniversary. They counted down the top 100 albums of all time. And you were on there. And I had never heard it. And you guys looked so strange on the cover. And it was so compelling to me. And I just thought, I have to find out what this is. And uh, and I'll be honest. At first, it was um, it took me a while to really get it. You know, maybe other people tell you that. It's not pop music. So it's something strange. It's something different. It's science. It's very odd. It took me a while to warm up. And then you warm up and then you realize that this is one of the greatest things you've ever heard. Anyway, that's a long way of saying 
That night in San Francisco, television happened to be there. So I went to the concert. I was so excited. In fact, to this day, it's one of those things where I don't actually even remember the show very well because I was so overwhelmed with excitement to be there. Right. And you you weren't there. And I was so no, disappointed. I left, in, I left in 2007. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> the, deal we, the deal we had was that any three of the original or the recording members uh, can go out and under the, the name of television. So I'm not there, but uh, they... Tom's got his best friend uh, playing guitar, doing all my parts. Yeah, it uh, yeah. it sounded great, but I was disappointed oh, yeah. that I wasn't getting the full television experience. His name is Jimmy Rip, we should say for anyone who doesn't know. Oh, I know, yeah, right. I know Jimmy for like decades and decades. I bet. Do you? How do you feel about that? I mean, you obviously. I don't know if you just have no interest in being in television, or. Where you stand on that today? Well, I'm glad they're going out and uh, and because of that, they keep the name in the in the lights and uh, yeah. people buy the records. And I'm on yeah. the records, so that's <laughs> in, inescapable. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, when I left the band, it was uh, I was very happy to be out of it. Okay. Um, I don't know that much about what you do today. What um, I, you, in the book? Now I should again. I, I mentioned uh, in the last couple of weeks. I read your book, "Everything Is Combustible," which came out, I believe, last year. I read it twice. I got it on Audible, and I have a long commute to work, so I listened to it twice on the way to and from work, and uh, I love it. So, yeah, it. Um, Tell me what you do today. I think you referenced in there somewhere just offhandedly that you have students. Do you teach guitar? What do you do today, Richard? I don't anymore. I, I, I will probably teach again, but not in the near future. I um, have a band. We're going out doing some dates around the New York uh, metropolitan area in October. So I'm gearing okay. up for that. And uh, next year, I don't know what's going on, but uh, I'll be playing out. Good. So is this like a a bit of an all star band with friends of yours? Anyone we would know? No, uh, probably nobody you would know. But it's a band that I've had for a number of years. So when you go out and play these shows, I mean, you have you know, a number, you have half a dozen or so solo albums to draw from. Are you also going to play television material? We've been doing a, a couple numbers from uh, Marquee Moon, which make people happy. Good. You know, I can't, I can't escape the fact that that was a big part of my life for 37 years. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> it's very true. Um, you, uh, now, you have a new album as of last year called The Countdown, for anyone who doesn't know. And um, it's really good. In fact, the song on there, So Sad, especially, uh, So mm -hmm. Sad to me feels like that it's got some kind of marquee moon type soloing going on. I mean, you can't help yourself because you sound the way you do. But anyone who's interested in hearing more, I would, I would point them to So Sad because that song is great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah. 
what what what's the motivator today to put out new music? I mean, it's difficult because no one's going to buy it, no matter how great you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's very that's very funny. Well, no, I mean, there's no place to make money making music anymore. I mean, I still get royalties from uh, the records I have made, and that barely keeps me afloat. Mm-hmm. But uh, barely is fine by me as long as I am afloat. Good. I live. I live very much a hermit's life. Really? How so? How so? As I uh, have very few friends, and uh, that I, I like to be alone. Mm-hmm. I am very good company to myself. Yeah. And some people get really lonely, but loneliness and aloneness are very very different things agreed and so i don't mind being alone in my uh because i i keep good company to myself yeah i um i thought it was kind of interesting yeah you may yeah i'm i i have you know again reading the book i have so many thoughts about you as a person richard that i'm going to ask you about further here in a minute but i did want to touch on something you got married a few years ago yeah, my second marriage, uh, I guess about six years now we've been married. But we've been together about 12 years. Okay. So, yeah, that's what What does she do? Chattanooga. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> she takes, no, she takes care of her parents. Her okay. Mother, her father passed away shortly after we moved down here. And, uh, and her mother's you know, got age-related issues, so she takes care of her, and that's a that's a very good thing. Okay, so you moved to Chattanooga, but now you're back in New York. Is that right? No, I moved to Chattanooga, and I'm in Chattanooga. Oh, you are. Oh, okay. I thought I was calling you in New York. Okay. I go to New. Yeah, I go to New York from time to time. And okay. The band that I have are, are still located there. Okay. So. All right, I get it. Okay, um, now I, I had mentioned that soloing in the "So Sad" song, and obviously, that's what—that's uh, kind of the hallmarks of Richard Lloyd—is this incredible, unique soloing. And I wondered if you were able to describe the art of a guitar solo. For instance, the title track "Marky Moon." Um, I also like "Field of Fire." That's one of the other most incredible things I've ever heard. Um, like, how did how did Marky Moon the song happen? I know you guys practice a lot. Is it is a guitar solo made up on the spot? Are you writing all of that down and memorizing every little tweak? Tell us about it, Richard. Well, we don't write down. We never wrote down anything in music score, uh, but uh, it's certainly not improv. Part of it's improvisation, but there's. It's set up to be like a mini symphony, so it has parts and it has movements, and uh, it's the same with any of my solos. I like to, uh, I, it's like a voice, you mm. know, and you have a story to tell, and that's the melody, and you want, we have to have a beginning and an end, and hopefully a middle that's, uh, that tells a melodic story in, it, in itself. Sometimes it matches the vocal melody, but mm-hmm. not in my case. It's usually something else. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> so say, for instance, the day you recorded that solo uh, for the record. For what? Record? Was it for Marky Moon? Was it note for note uh, how you guys had been playing it for weeks or however long leading up to that very moment? Or is that moment, is what we hear on the record a moment captured that's unique and unlike anything else? I would say it's more of the second, although my, there's two solos. One is me and one is Tom. Mm -hmm. And Tom plays mm -hmm. the longer solo towards the end of Marquee Nunn. Mm. And that, he, he does not have the talent to play the same thing twice. Mm. So it's a general, general structuring. My oh, solo okay. is usually is I can play it back note for note, and some some of the things got doubled in the studio. Okay. Okay. So it's just the kind of memory that I have. Yeah, um, I mean I'm sure you hear stuff like this a lot, but you realize that nobody has ever sounded like the two of you in the history of the world. <laughs> I don't know how else well, to say it. You know, on, nobody. Well, yeah. A couple people went to the moon and a couple people climbed Mount Everest and uh, that's my journey. Yeah. It was to be in that band. Yeah. I, I mean, it still continues to blow people's minds. All of it. I mean, um, yes. One of the other, and we can move off of Marky Moon here in a second, but while I have you, I want to talk about one of the greatest debut albums in history. Um, I think you mentioned well, in the book. Is, yeah, it is that. Yes, it is. Sure. Um, we've been playing for three years solid and doing two sets a night. And uh, when we played, maybe three nights a week, two sets a night. Uh -huh. So we've gotten, you know, that was like based on the idea that the, how the Beatles went to Hamburg and yeah. it really became the band that they were. And uh, I guess we, we modeled the CBGB's experience based on that. We wanted to be the house band somewhere that no one would want to take it away from us. And uh, mm -hmm. we found a flop, uh, a bar on the Bowery, Skid Row. Yeah. Literally a flop house upstairs yeah. <laughs> so sometimes sometimes they would have urine or wine dripping from the ceiling yeah. <laughs> it was a real crummy place but that but it was ours and yeah. then all these other bands came and joined and joined up so you had a really great scene there for I call it a three year long New Year's Eve party <laughs> I could see that. I could see yeah, that. Yeah. All the, all the bands were very different, so it was a yeah. exciting time as well. Then yeah. we all got signed one by one, and then you can't play there anymore. Because you're, yeah. you're making a record or you're on tour or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then other bands have to come in and fill the spot. Right. I've, I've often. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I've often wondered, who's to say that there aren't other CBGB scenes happening in other parts of the world, but no one would know because, you know, the Rolling Stone offices aren't down the street or whatever, whatever it is, you know, I don't, um, I think 
you it's all of the opposite of that. There are no other scenes like that going on. You don't there think really so? No, I wonder I know, sometimes if I know so. Really? Yeah, okay. I mean it's a very it's a very very, very rare thing for that much talent to be showcased in one particular place and nowadays you you because of the internet and uh, things get popularized for instantaneously. There's no place for a guy, you know, a band or something to really work on their, uh, to woodshed their talent. Yeah. So they're either manufactured by record companies or, you know, there are different scenes that pop up like grunge in, in Seattle and, uh, you know, hard, heavy, hard rock, heavy metal, uh, glam. Mm -hmm. from London and from L.A. Yeah. And so there's different uh, scenes, but right now there's no scene anywhere that I can imagine. No, I, can't no, think I don't of think a, so. I can't yeah. think of a single place. I just, um, when I think of, like, for instance, you know, Motown, Smokey Robinson, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, all those people grew up within blocks of each other. You know what I mean? Like, what are the chances? And then this out, this label appears in an area where those people are able to shine and do the thing that they are great at. And I feel like that's kind of similar for CBGBs. I just wonder if, like, what if that, what if there's something like that happening in Boise, Idaho, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or, you know, who knows? Well, you guys, there is. Let's yeah. There is, but I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. You might be right. You might be right. Um, Things are too spontaneously known. Yeah. You know, one other one of the other songs, there were two other moments on Marky Moon I wanted to ask you about. Specifically one, I think uh, Guiding Light is another one of my favorite songs on that album. And I find the ending so beautiful. that Those soaring chords yeah. just ringing to the skies. And I believe you played that. Is that right? Actually, that's like eight of me. Yeah. <laughs> this is the idea I got from uh, from uh, Phil Spector, you know, Wall of Sound. Yeah. So I just, just overdubbed and overdubbed the same solo going over and over. Ah, uh, it's gorgeous. That knocks it's me out every time. Stuff, you know, yeah. it makes it more impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then uh, I got to just say, and I don't know who's, I don't know if Tom wrote every little stitch of music, but one of my favorite things in the history of rock is spelling out F-R-I-C-T-I-O-N in friction. It's one of the greatest moments that's ever been created. I'd love that. It gets my blood pumping every single time. Good. Well, yeah. that was Tom. That's Tom. Oh, okay. And a very talented fellow. Although yeah. He's certainly shot himself in the foot enough. Yeah. I, you know, that's, um, I feel like you, what it means didn't. Yeah. Right. Very true. And I don't, you know, I don't, I feel like not enough there. There's not enough Richard Lloyd out there either. And I'm not saying that you shot yourself in the foot, but I, I feel like there well, should I be did. more. Well, okay. You said it. I didn't. And that happens, you know, it's, it's you know what? I'm going to stop us now. Because first okay. of all, first of all, the 
conversation is not all that interesting to me. And secondarily, you keep interrupting me. And so ah. I think I, I want to just, I want to get off the air with it. Really? I'm sorry. Can I, can I apologize first? I, the, sure, I, we can, maybe we can, look, maybe we can try this again, but right now we're not having a, a two-way conversation. You're asking questions and I begin to answer and you interject something and I can't get, I talk a lot. Yeah. And I'm not able to. So I'm very uncomfortable with the way things are being handled. And it's not your fault. You are who you are. But I don't think this is going to work out for me. Okay. Let me, uh, yeah. let me, I'm sorry. Can I respond to that real quick? Sure. Okay. I, uh, I appreciate everything you're saying and I was noticing it too. And it happens sometimes as a, as an unfortunate result of two people being on the phone, you know, and finding like a, you know, a dynamic that works. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I don't know you, I've never had a conversation with you. So sometimes I feel like I'm supposed to jump in and I probably shouldn't. If you would like to continue talking, I will pipe down. Or if you want to try some other time, that's okay, too. I really, really well, apologize, Richard. That's okay. You don't have to apologize, but I want to get off the phone. Okay. And okay. Uh, postpone this if, if we're going to be able to do it. Uh, we need both to think about it. Okay. Um, I'm, I am really sorry. And I didn't even get into your book, which is what I mostly wanted to talk about. So I will um, let me know if you change your mind and I'll check in with you again in a month or so. That sounds good. Okay. 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 Thank you, Richard. I I apologize. You too. Bye-bye. Have a great evening. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right. There it is. In full, me and Richard Lloyd. Um, Again, guys, you tell me. I don't know. I... um, I, my biggest regret on this one is that I, you know, I wanted to kick it off telling the story about seeing them in concert and him not being there. And so that obviously led to a conversation out of the gate about Marky Moon. And I really regret that we didn't ever get around to the book. Maybe if I had picked a different way to sort of introduce myself in the conversation that relied on the relied on the book instead maybe that would have gone places and you guys tell me i mean you know i used to get burned all the time about my that i would interrupt or that i would insert myself too much and and i i get it i get it i uh the dynamic here was such that i was kind of i don't know having a hard time sort of knowing when to insert myself and it's always difficult over the phone so i just went with my gut and i hope that i love richard so much that i could kind of love him through it and it didn't work and um so I got to carry that with me. But anyway, um, you guys tell me, I don't know, maybe I fanboyed out too much. Maybe I was too, I don't know, maybe I was. I got too deep in the weeds. Well, whatever it is. Uh, if you don't know about television, listen to this song right here, Marky Moon. It's 10 minutes long, and it includes the greatest guitar solo of all time, in my opinion. And this is off of the greatest debut rock album of all time, in my opinion. So give it a listen. It's going to eat up the next 10 minutes of your life, but it's worth it because it's fantastic. All right. Thanks, everybody. We have a uh, deep dive coming out this week, and it is an epic, epic deep dive. Here's the thing. 
It's a R&B album. And I know from experience talking with many of you that you're less interested when we cut, when we have R&B guests. I wish so much that was not the case, but this is one that you will want to listen to whether you like R&B music or not because every so many legends play into the album that we are deep diving this week. Uh, I I desperately want people to hear it because it is fantastic and it is worth your time. So look out for that in a few days. It is going to be great. Next week, uh, our guest is sort of an obscure one. He was the uh, front man for a band that only ever managed one album, one major label album. And I was going to put do a sort of a series of guests like that, kind of going back to the origins of the hustle. What's the story of these people who have these brief moments in their careers? It didn't quite work out. I'll explain most of it next week, but that's our guest next week is, uh, you know, these people have stories too, and they're fascinating. So you're going to hear that one next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Makevich. Thanks, buddy, for all that you do. You guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page on there. You can send us a message. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Merry Christmas, folks. We love you all so much. Thank you.